coming up here. Sue gave me a butterscotch to suck on, so I had to make sure I ate it before I started talking. But it reminded me of a friend of, I think it was a friend of Sue's, that they were at a wedding. It might have been her sister, Carol's sister's wedding, I think. And they were standing up there, and the, uh, the, the, one of the groomsmen had a lifesaver in his mouth, and it popped out of his mouth. And the preacher thought it was the wedding ring, and he reached out and picked it up, and it was a wet lifesaver, so... I want to make sure I don't spit out the, uh, the butterscotch to you. There's, there's something. I had to chew it up. <clears throat> How's that a way to start to look at the God's Word this morning? <clears throat> you know, um, when, when I was working at the Pueblo Bible Seminary, we used to take our students up to the, the remotest mountains in, in, uh, every year. And we lived for two weeks with the Tapanecos in uh, the western part of Mexico. And... Uh, they were there for about two weeks, 15 days or so, and uh, the one thing that we'd eat probably twice a day would be eggs, every day, eggs, and getting about halfway through that, about the first week, I didn't think I was ever going to get them down, you know, just, you know, just couldn't get them down, and I thought I, when I come back, I'd never eat another egg as long as I live, but of course, I always do now. And the reason I only tell you that is uh, I can certainly sympathize with the, uh, with the Jewish people, with the Israelites. When they were in the desert, and they started complaining about eating manna every day, and I'm going, yeah, I kind of get that. I kind of understand that, of the, the complaint about that. Well, in, in Numbers, there's a, there's an old book, the Old Testament book of Numbers, there is a really interesting story, a really uh, odd story, but of course, Numbers is full of odd stories if you ever go through it. Uh, but one of those odd stories is that the Israelites were complaining about the manna and then the quail, and it's just, you know, that, that we should have gone back to Egypt, we never should have left, and and uh, Moses was tired of carrying that burden on his shoulders this whole time. And God says to him, you look, draw together 70 elders from the people around the tent meeting, around the tent, the tabernacle, and I will pour my spirit on them. And they will prophesy and take some of that burden off of you. And so that's what they have. That's what happened. They gathered around and, and God poured his spirit out on them and, and, and Moses was relieved of some of this burden. Now, it's hard to imagine exactly that scene because the, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details. And what I imagine is that these 70 elders were kind of spaced out talking to people and they were speaking God's word, what God was doing, what he promised, uh, what, why he was doing that. That's kind of what I, how I picture it. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's sort of like my imagination of what happened. And uh, it was all good. Moses was in charge. He, he kind of he put it out on them and, and things started going along smoothly. And then Moses' assistant, Joshua, came up to him and said, you know what, there were these two guys out here, Eldad and Medad, out here, and they were prophesying away from the tent. They were not in part of the meeting. They, were, they weren't following protocol here. You know, we need to tell them to stop doing that. And Moses says, that's nonsense. I want them to prophesy. In fact, I wish God would pour his spirit out on everybody, on all of Israel, so that they would all prophesy and they would all know, you know, what I'm doing and all know God's work. He says, don't be jealous for me. I wish that would happen all the time. And so you had these guys who were following all the rules. They were at the right place. They did it at the right time. And then you had these two guys out here sort of renegades. And Moses says, no, I'm going to relinquish control to the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to try to keep it in my hands. I'm going to give it to God. Well, then you go a little bit further down in the Old Testament, and you come across the book of Joel. Joel is a prophet. We don't really know much about Joel. In fact, we know hardly nothing of, of Joel. 
We don't really know exactly when he prophesied. We're not really sure about that. But it's just a few pages between Hosea and Amos. And Amos and Hosea, we kind of know. Hosea is the guy that married the prostitute. And, and Amos is the guy that talked about justice rolling down like a river. And so, but Joel, we, we don't know that much about. And you read it, and it's nothing really to capture the imagination except this one section here where Joel is expanding the story of Moses. And he says the whole, there will be a time when the Holy Spirit will come on all flesh and all will be speaking and they will come on all people, young and old, men and women, slave, rich, everyone. He has taken that story of Moses and expanding it. And the work of God is always expansion. It's never constriction. It's always inclusion, never exclusion. And that's what Joel is prophesying here. He expands the story of Moses horizontally and vertically. He says, he says it's going to break all the borders and the boundaries that you think are in Israel. It's going to go beyond that, not just the people of Israel. His spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh, he says. And he also expands it vertically. He says it's not just going to be on some elite people. It's going to be on everyone, from the most prestigious man up here to the poorest woman down here to sons and daughters and, uh, and slaves, male and female. Our, our sons will, will, will um, see visions and the old men will dream dreams. Everyone, this will happen. And then we move over to Acts that Laurel just read. And Peter's saying, this is that. He's saying, what you're seeing now is what Joel talked about. The Spirit came on all people speaking all languages to prophesy, to tell the people what God was doing. This is how it begins. The last days, he says, are now launched. God is doing something new. And this is it. And his Spirit falls on all. This is what we've been waiting for. Now, it took a church, the church in Acts a little while to settle into that, okay? They weren't so sure about a lot of things, and it took them a while, but, uh, but they finally got it. I mean, Peter himself didn't quite grasp it all until chapter 10 when he's on the roof. Remember that story where he's on the roof and he's praying, and God lays, lays down a bunch of food and all these unclean foods, and, and uh, God says, don't hesitate, get up and eat. And Moses says, hey, I'm a good Jew. I'm not going to eat that stuff. That's not going to ever touch my lips. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Now, that's a metaphor. That's a picture for what's going to happen in a few minutes. Because God also spoke to this Roman soldier named Cornelius, and he and his household shows up, knocks on the door, and says, what's going on here? And Peter realizes, and God tells Peter, like the same word he used with the food, he says, don't he says, get up, don't discriminate, and talk with them. And they receive the Holy Spirit. Just, like, just what Peter's talked about in Acts 2, and Peter's now starting to get it. Then we see it in, ch in chapter 15, where you have the Council of Jerusalem kind of debating, okay, do they need to be circumcised or not? I don't know, you know, and God speaks to them. You see it in, you see it in Antioch. You see it in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. The church is now starting to get it. It's now you get that the Spirit is going to fall on all flesh without borders, without boundaries. Whatever, whatever line we have in our heads 
The Holy Spirit is going to cross this. This dream is flourishing. The last days are launched. As Sherlock Holmes would say, the game is afoot. And he says that he has called us and he has empowered us to participate in that. All of this stuff is not just about our personal salvation. We get to participate in this, in this launching of this new program under the king that we call the kingdom of heaven. God is doing something new and he has called us and empowered us to participate in it. When we talk about Pentecost and we talk about the spiritual gifts, a lot of things that come to mind is the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement. And I'm, I'm assuming that probably a lot of you have heard of those words, maybe know very well about them, what it, what it is. Uh, I've mentioned my testimony that we had this charismatic revival when I was in, in the Methodist church back in, when I was a kid and, and when I was in middle school. And it was a vibrant thing. And yes, there were excesses and yes, there were pride, but it was, but it was very vibrant. Uh, charismatic, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with it, it usually has to do with a, usually a style of worship. It's people that kind of that practice speaking in tongues and prophecy and other, some of these other gifts and things like that. Well, I'm going to tell you this morning that there's no such thing as a non-charismatic Christian. They don't exist. If you are a believer, you are a charismatic Christian. That word, it just comes from, from charisma, the word gift. And the way I read the New Testament is that God has given all of us, if, uh, all of us who, who have trusted Christ, has given all of us a spiritual gift, at least one spiritual gift to be used, to be empowered, to, to be part of what he's doing in these last days, in, these, in this launching of the kingdom. Every one of us, we are all charismatics. And so really, the, the question is, you, the, the idea is you have a gift. You have a spiritual gift. Use it. That's what Paul is telling us. That's what the New Testament is telling us. You have a gift. Use it. That's what he wants us to do. We have been called and we have been empowered to participate in this. The Christian life, by definition, is a life in and through the Spirit. Just the way it is. Last week we talked about the holiness life, the holy life. And, and I was trying to communicate that this was just, this is a virtuous life. This is functioning well. It's doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. This is, uh, this is the life that is, that is, uh, is a normal life. Because God sets the norm, norm, the, uh, the, uh, the norm for this life. It may not be the usual life, but it really is the norm. Because we're so used to the dysfunction, we think that's normal. But it's not. The functional life is the normal. And he says, you are, if you are a, a virtuous life, a holy life is one that's, that does what needs to be done when it needs to be done. This person is res response-able. This person is normal. And this person is rooted in the riches of God. And it's being rooted in the riches of God that, that, that produces that fruit. No tree gets out there and tries to try to produce pears. It's rooted in the richness of the soil and it just automatically happens. That's the virtuous life. That's the life that functions well. Rooted in the spirit. Rooted in God's reality. And we start to automatically produce Peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and generosity and self-control. All of those things that Paul talks about in Galatians. 
Well, if the virtuous life, the holy life is the virtuous life, the charismatic life is the empowered life. And I cannot emphasize enough that these two things must go together. Because we know that power is dangerous. And God will entrust power to someone who is holy, who is virtuous. He will only do it to those who are virtuous and, and because they're the ones who can use the power and not destroy themselves and not destroy each other. Amen. So those two things need to go together. And so what I want to talk about this morning are these spiritual gifts. That if the holy, if the, the holy life is a virtuous life, the charismatic life is the empowered life. And yes, we learn holiness so that the power is safe to be used by us. Those two things go together. So what are the spiritual gifts? Let me pull out my little remote here. So first of all, what are, I, we cannot cover all this stuff in one sermon, okay? If you want to really, really probe the spiritual gifts, I would encourage you maybe to start a small group on the spiritual gifts. There's lots of good material out there. Uh, you can talk to Aaron Griffin. You can talk to me, and then I'll say, go talk to Aaron Griffin. And... Uh, <laughs> But if you're interested in that, that might be a good, another good small group to start, is one on, on dealing with spiritual gifts. Um, they are uh, found in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and by far the largest section is 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, if you want to go back and look at those. And it kind of identifies where these gifts are. We're not going to cover each one specifically, but I'm just going to put them in three different categories. There are leadership gifts. These are the apostles. These are the evangelists. Uh, the teachers and the preachers. There's those those are, are some gifts. There's the community building gifts. This is wisdom and faith and the, and the gift of helps, the, the things that build up the community. And then there's the ecstatic gifts, and these are the kind of the controversial ones. This is speaking in tongues, prophesy, interpreting tongues, uh, discerning, the, discerning the spirits. So those are basically your basic groups. Now, there are some people who believe these, these ecstatic gifts have ceased. I just, I'm going to give you a little bit of brief here just because it's, uh, sometimes it causes confusion. People think the ecstatic gifts have ceased, have stopped at the first century, that they no, they're no longer needed. Uh, I know very, very godly people who believe that. I really can't see the biblical support for that personally, but I know there are a lot of godly people who believe that. But there's also people who believe that it's, it, they've ceased concentrically. In other words, they may appear at certain places but as the church matures, they will kind of fade away. So regardless of all that, these things, these things, uh, these things exist. Um, but so it's kind of caused a lot of controversy in the last probably 50 years in the church. Uh, churches have divided over this. Um, our church that I, my Methodist church had a kind of a division over this. But I just um, want to mention the purpose of these gifts. And uh, that is... The whole reason, if we, can, if we can identify the purpose, then it will clarify a lot of things. And the purpose is very simple. He said, Paul says it's just straight out in Romans 12, 7. I mean, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. The Holy Spirit is given to each of us in a special way that is for the good of all. That's why they exist, period. So that everyone benefits. The, you may, the, these ecstatic experiences may be great for you and they're part of your spiritual life. That's wonderful. But if the, ultimately, as if it's not for the good of all, then they're kind of being misused. There is a variety of these gifts 
given and that Paul talks about. And so it, it, he tells about how the body works together with all these pieces because if you think that you're nothing, Paul says, no, you're not. You are something because every piece is important. And then there are people who think they're everything and God says, no, you're not. You need everyone else. So we start comparing each other with these spiritual gifts and all this kind of things and, and that gets us nowhere. Comparison robs joy. It doesn't do any good. It causes despair when there's no cause for despair. It causes pride when there's no cause for, just for pride. So hear me clearly. God does not rank people. Okay? There is no ranking with God. These are all important, he says. God isn't ranking anyone. The purpose is for the good of all. And that is why right in the middle of this section, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, we have 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. And I think it is probably the most beautiful words ever written about love in history. I have read these words in, in weddings before, and I've had people come up to me and say, that was just beautiful. Where did you find that? I say, it's actually in the Bible. Really? Yeah, it really is. What was most disturbing is my aunt, who grew up as a PK like my dad, my dad's sister. I did her, her, um, her daughter's wedding, and she came up and asked me that. And I said, Big Daddy never preached on 1 Corinthians 13? I don't know, that just surprised me. Some of the most beautiful words ever written about love, and that's why I think that he put it right there is because this is for love. This is for the benefit of everyone. And when we started this series in Trinity, I, on the Trinity, I argued that the Trinity is these three persons where there's this eternal love flowing forever and ever and ever between these three persons, so much so that they become one, that they are one, not become, I was to say they are one. That is the Trinity. And our job, or we just step into that flow. And that flow flows through us as we become channels of this. And God empowers us to do this in all kinds of variety of ways. And there is no hierarchy. There's no ranking of all these gifts. They're all needed. And they're all important. So if you think you're everything, well, we got news for you. You need the person sitting next to you. If you think you're nothing, that's not true. We need you. That's what we were there for. So the purpose is for the common good. Now, some of these things, no doubt that there's some crazy things happening, okay, with the spiritual gifts. No doubt there's crazy stuff going on. And um, I heard one speaker who comes from a very conservative background said that he visited a charismatic Pentecostal meeting once when he was a teenager. And he goes, I came away from it thinking, well, this is a, self, this is a safe haven for people with mental illness issues. But then he said, but I have to admit, there seemed to be this openness and this desire, this longing for God. And so, yes, there are some crazy things happening. But you know what Paul tells us? He says, don't, don't sweat it. Don't despise it. Just think on things that are good. Think of things that are good. And, and I remember this when, in this time when I was in middle school, there was this one lady on our evening services who, I mean, you can almost put it in the bulletin. 
that, oh yeah, sister so-and-so will be speaking in tongues at this time. And she would stand up and speak in tongues. And I remember talking to our youth pastor, going, wow, what's all, what's all this going on, you know? And he says, is she hurting you? No. He says, then what's your problem? You know, what's your problem? Don't despise it. Don't despise her. Yeah, yeah, we can change some things. But you know what? Crazy things happen in Paul's day, too. The reason we have so much on the gifts in 1 Corinthians is because crazy things were happening. And so Paul explained a lot of it. But he never despised anyone. He said, let's make sure things are done in order. Let's try to make sure things are done in order just to avoid criticism and look for the good. Redeem the good. So don't despise it. God still works in messiness with messy people. That's pretty much the Bible, isn't it? That God works the, through our messiness. So what can we agree on? Whether the sign, sign gifts have died in the first century or not, the Holy Spirit did not. He has not died. He is still active. And we can say that, and we all agree with it. We're at whichever branch of Christianity you come from, I don't know, we can all agree with that, that the Holy Spirit did not die. But sometimes we live like it. In a pragmatic way, theologically, we say, yeah, he's still alive. But pragmatically, we kind of ignore him. When Jesus said, the sheep hear my voice. When Paul says that you listen to him, and John says he's anointed you, do we really live like that? Pragmatically, I think a lot of us live like the Holy Spirit has died, that he's not part of our life, that he is still in the, in the job of hearing us, he is still in the job of leading us, he is still in the job of doing miracles, he's still in the job of, of speaking to us. Second thing is, losing our focus can lead to spiritual defection. And we all can lose our focus. If you come from a more, uh, you know, traditional or, or like, a, like a Bible church or Baptist church, it's easy to fall into all about understanding the Bible and, and getting to the Bible and, and, and studying it. And, and that's, that's my job, you know. That's supposedly what I was trained to do. But it's so easy for the Bible to become an idol. We even have a word for it, bibliolatry, where that takes the place of God. But if you're coming from a charismatic Pentecostal wing, it can be the experience where we seek that more than anything else. And sooner or later, it will lead to spiritual defection. If all we have is spend all of our time in nothing but the book and, nothing, and, and very little relationship with the person, we will, we will end up with spiritual affection. We will walk away. If all we're looking for is the experience, the next high, the next experience, pretty soon that experience is not going to be what it used to be and you're going to walk away. It easily leads to spiritual defection. If we lose that Christocentric focus, it is all about looking to Jesus. And the third thing is all, we need, all of us need the Holy Spirit's guidance to discern God's will. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever wing, whatever, whatever denomination, whatever group you come from, we all need the Holy Spirit's guidance to discern God's will. 
I happen to believe that God still communicates with us. I have had experiences with dreams. That's, I, I've had these experiences with dreams with about some that, that just come out of nowhere. This family that I worked for when I was in seminary doing yard work, and I got to know them pretty well. In fact, he kind of almost paid my way through seminary. And I just lost touch with him. He became chairman of the board of the seminary as well. And I had this dream about his kids. They were little bitty things when I was there. Where did that come from? So I went to go look at it, see if I could find his address, see if he was still living in the same place. I was just going to drop him a note saying I was going to pray, I'm praying for him because God brought you to my mind and his wife had just died. I really believe the Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit speaks through us. Sometimes it's just through an impulse. Sometimes he, he says, and we'll talk about discernment next week, but sometimes he says, you know what? These are both good options. You're smart, you pick. Sometimes he does that. But we all need the Holy Spirit's guidance. Not just the logic, not just the Bible study, not just the instruction. We need to walk with the Spirit. So I want to close up with this. How to be a true charismatic. I started to call this Tommy's Five Easy Steps to Becoming a Charismatic. But I changed it. How to be a true charismatic. First of all, realize that you have a treasure in earthen vessels. You have a treasure in an earthen vessel. And that treasure is Jesus Christ and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You have that inside. And when, G when Paul talks about us being clay vessels or earthen vessels, he's not just talking, I don't think he's just talking about the physicality, that this physical body has the spirit inside. I think he's talking about other things that implies our, our personality our family of origin, our culture, uh, we all have a different way of carrying the treasure. And according to the way I read the New Testament, every way is important. And we all have a different way to do it. But what we pass on is the treasure, not the vessel. I may want to pass on to you my southern culture, but that's not the treasure. That's the vessel. It's the treasure we pass on, the truth, the gospel. Jesus Christ. That's what we pass on, not the vessel. How we enshroud that, that treasure inside just differs from person to person. Remove your impulse to domesticate God. And what I mean by that is we all want control, especially those of us who are kind of introverts and kind of like to be have things sure and stuff. We like to control things and don't, don't make me emotional. And I, I get embarrassed if I, you know, I, I kid around with Sue that I'm just turning into this sentimental old man that we will watch something or hear something and music doesn't, I said this before, music does it to me all the time. And I choke up and I can't tell you why, I just choke up and it's embarrassing. But God says, don't, don't try to domesticate. Don't try to control me. We all do it. Whether you're a charismatic or, or a conservative Baptist, we all do it. We all feel like we need to domesticate God so that he fits my mold. I read an article once where this guy was saying that the, the Episcopal Church 
is really no different than the Pentecostal church because they both follow rituals and liturgies. And at first you go, what? You can't think of any groups that are more different than that. But then I went to, I, I had this student who was a Pentecostal pastor, and I would preach at his church, I don't know, three or four times a year. And, uh, and I always loved going there, but it was always the same. You know, it was very emotional, but they had a different style of music that would be very upbeat, lots of clapping, lots of dancing. They had these, these women with flags, and they would dance in the front, and they would do that, and then it would come down to quiet, more quiet. And then they'd start this singing in tongues. And then there would be a, a prayer and then the sermon. And it, it was every Sunday. I was like, well, that, yeah, that is kind of like the Episcopal Church. <laughs> they have their liturgy that goes all the way down. It's like this give and take with the priest and the people, and they follow the liturgy around. We all kind of want to domesticate God to fit our mold. But let him surprise you every now and then. Amen. Be open to that. Let him move your, move your soul. Let him, let him break your heart. It's not going to hurt that bad. And you will see him in a different light. Remember um, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He said, you know, unless you're born of the, born of the, born of the Spirit, and he, Nicodemus didn't know what was going on, he says, the Spirit moves like the wind. You don't know where it's coming, where it's going. You just know it, ex it just comes. He says, and so it is those who are born of the Spirit. It just happens and it surprises us. Don't try to domesticate God. Rethink your anemic spiritual practices. Jesus said the kingdom will come by power, not by word. And I traffic in words. But I have to remember that I've got some anemic practices. We all kind of know how to speak Christianese in the Christian language, and we think that's good enough but he expects us to be in action. And I'm talking about disciplines and I'm talking about relationships. Number four, reconcile yourself to a lifetime of growth. This is gonna take a lifetime. Remember last week I said, holiness is not about perfection, it's about progress. That's all it is. And this will take a lifetime. There is plenty of room to progress. I don't care if you're 80 or if you're eight. There's plenty of room to progress and just, Decide, hey, this is going to take a lifetime. I'm 64 years old, and I'm still going to, you know, still working at it, still moving. Resolve yourself to a lifetime of witness and service. We have to remember that all that empowerment points somewhere. It's not to, so that I can have an ecstatic experience or that I can feel good or that I can pat myself on the back. It all points somewhere to offer salvation and life to the non-believer and hope and affirmation for the believer. It all was pointing somewhere. It was always pointing to Christ. Ephesians 4, 15 says, 15 and 16, talked about, he's just finishing up his discussion on the gifts. And he says, so that we may grow in every area unto him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. It always points that way. We get a charge oftentimes by exercising our spiritual gift. We get a charge from that. I am privileged to be able to 
do what I love to do. I just have to pinch myself sometimes that I actually get paid to study the Bible. And that's a charge, but that's not the point. And I do think that when you do exercise your gift, whatever that gift is, and however, however you, you, whatever context you practice it in, you will get a charge out of it. But that's not the point. The point is where it points to, to build us up in love. So we're always asking ourselves, is this for the common good or not? Does this give life or does it take life? Does it, does it construct or does it destruct? Does it, in, in this story that we talked about with Moses, does it expand or does it constrict? Does it include or does it exclude? Those are our questions. Those are our key questions that point us to the gospel. No doubt the Holy Spirit will mess you up. Okay? Uh, he will mess you up. Uh, we call him the comforter. But when I say he's the comforter, I think when the Bible says he's comforter, I don't think he's, the Bible is talking about him coming to bring you milk and chocolate chip cookies. You know, we're not talking about coziness here. We are talking about truth and love. And that's when he will comfort you. That's when he comforts you. And sometimes I would like to freeze-dry some of those experiences I had in junior high and kind of relive them but I know I need to build on those. Those were not in and of itself the, the important thing. I need to build on them and, and move toward that goal in Ephesians chapter 4 of love and building up the body. Joe Aldrich, who was the president of Multnomah uh, Institute, Bible, I think it was Bible Institute back then, I think it's a seminary, Bible college now, uh, he said that it usually takes the average seminary graduate five years to thaw out. And and I, I really think he's right. Um, when I got into seminary, I, my understanding of the scriptures, you know, grew by quantum leaps. My desire to serve God grew. I was, we felt like we were called to the mission field and we wanted to do that. Those things, those things were great, but my vibrancy was just not there. And we entered the mission field and we, we loved it there. We loved working there. But we had this sort of crisis, and we had a lot of things happen to us, a lot of losses. And sometimes God worked miraculously. I think I've shared this before, that our, our home church sent us $500, and we had, our, our, our um, support had dropped to $500 a month, which was our rent, and, uh, because of a church split back in the States. And uh, this, uh, this church sent us this check for $500, and we thought, oh, Great. Boy, this just came right at the right time. Praise the Lord, you know. And then I said, well, wait a minute. What is this for? So I called them and said, is this for the ministry or was this like a gift to us? And they go, no, we want you to give it to a ministry that you, where you're at. And so it's like, oh, crud. <laughs> so I, we gave it to the scholarship fund where I was working at the seminary there in Puebla and paid for this student's tuition. And it wasn't like two days later where another missionary from another mission agency, not even Cam, not even our mission agency, knocked on the door and said, I don't know why, but God wants me to give you this check for $500. <laughs> and it's just like God was just passing this money around, you know, and it, I don't explain it. But we've also had losses where God didn't seem to do anything. And uh, I realized then what Tish Warren writes, he says, you can't count on God 
to stop bad things from happening to you. And that is obvious, but still it's hard to say out loud. You can't trust God to stop bad things from happening to you. You do. And we had some real losses, and I can't even tell you because I will start crying about one. But I remember those moments when we were praying and wanting God's power, wanting God's power to save this child, and he didn't. And even though I wanted his power, I ended up discovering the person again. And that's where it's at. And we had these friends, these Mexican friends that we worked with, Basilel and Lily, and they came to visit us in the hospital. And God used their spiritual gifts of warmth and compassion and bodybuilding to hold our hand and to pray for us. And while I was seeking the power, the gifts, he showed me the person, the Savior. And that's where it all points. So you have a gift. Use it. Use it. We have a question. People ask the question all the time, what am I called to do? What am I called to do? Well, what are you gifted to do? And do that. Find out what you're gifted to do and do that. That's what God's called us to do. Father, we thank you for the power of the Spirit and the mystery. I wish, personally, we knew how it worked, but I would just end up manipulating you or trying to. So, Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you are good, and we put our trust in you. In Jesus' name.